welcome to Films That Time Forgot, a exploration of uh, mainstream Hollywood films that have somewhat fallen through the cracks over the past 30-odd years. I'm your host, Adam Thornton, and with me is Julian Gratton. Hi, Julian. Hi there, Adam. Now, what is it exactly that you do? So I'm one quarter of um, a Film Fellas UK, um, where basically four friends who um, work in media and advertising, and we just have a passion for film. We, every time that we got together and did productions together and, and TV commercials together, myself, Ed, Ben and Colin would just geek out on films. You, you know, we, we were just very, very passionate film lovers and, you know, love everything from mainstream Hollywood to art house to European cinemas and, and cinemas of the Far East, especially we've got a you know great love of manga and, and things like that as well. And what we decided to do is in our spare time is try and run a film channel that wouldn't be like the normal kind of critique film channels where they seem very obsessed with um, raging against woke culture and mm. the modern state of Hollywood. What we wanted to do was very much take it from a um, positive kind of sense and just celebrate film, um, you, you know, rather than just go in there and, and just basically critique film. So we started our first episode, I believe it was around about October um, last year with Francis Ford Coppola, um, and we did a series of video essays. And then we um, decided that we wanted to do a series where we invited people who just, ordinary people who just have a passion for film onto the channel, uh, part of our Forgotten Great series, which is kind of similar to what you're doing here. Yeah. And that's how we met you. Yes. And, um, and, you know, and, and you graciously gave us some of your time to talk about this film, which we're, we're going to explore in more details. But that that's us, essentially. We're just four friends trying to run a film channel in our spare time. We can't promise that we're going to have regular episodes every week. I think we're running at about one a month at the moment. But I promise you... Um, you know, if you go and explore the film channel, I'm pretty sure you'll enjoy our video essays. I can speak for that, um, as I have been on their channel, um, talking about today's the film that we're covering in today's episode, which is the 1998 Denzel Washington horror thriller Fallen. Um, now, this came out in um, early 1998, and it didn't do all that well. It um, only made $25 million um, on a $46 million budget and was not particularly well received by critics, which is a shame because it's, um, I mean, I don't know if you found this, Julian, it's a very unique entry in not only Denzel's sort of um, filmography, but also in the horror genre of the 90s. Yeah, and I think, Adam, you know, what we can class Fallen in is a unique set of films that were criminally, overlooked at the time of release you, you know we can we can group this into what a lot of people kind of call is one of the great films of the cinema history the Shawshank Redemption you know you know which which bombed upon release and mm. wasn't really that phrased by critics but found a, a new lease of life on on um, DVD rentals and, and I think this is the same case with Fallen now I'm not putting it in the same category as the Shawshank mm. Redemption but there's very much a, a similar kind of overlooked greatness to this film and and it's no surprise that if you look at many critics top five denzel washington movies or top 10 denzel washington movies you will see this film mentioned time and time again and and that's because 
not only does Denzel exude beautiful Hollywood charm within this, you know, he is the modern-day Sidney Poitier. Oh, yeah. um, you know, he really carries this film. He, he you know, he, there's a there's a real sign that he is a true, true movie star in this movie. But it has a wonderful cast and, oh, it, yeah. and, and it has a great story. You know, OK, the story is not going to be for everybody's cup of tea, but if you just go for it and, you know, it will really kind of take you away. So I, I agree with you, Adam. I, I think this film is very much overlooked. But it's encouraging to see that, you know, people like yourself who discovered it during COVID have immediately fallen in love with it and seen how great it is. But also, actually, when you go and explore it and go into a lot of the critics' modern assessment of the film, people are kind of rallying behind it and saying, actually, this is is an overlooked classic. I mean, it does feel very ahead of its time. It it feels more like something that would do very well now in this sort of... It's this sort of era of more cerebral kind of psychologically minded horror films that you get from A24 and so on, you know, rather than, you know, you know, in terms of, in terms of its sort of its emphasis and atmosphere over shocks. I mean, it starts off actually um, establishing the atmosphere fantastically with, um, with Denzel's main character, the cop John Hobbs, um, celebrating the execution of Edgar Reese played by, Elias Katias, who many will know as Casey Jones from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles films of the early 90s, but who gives a really unhinged performance as Reese, who he really gives a sense when he's talking to Hobbs just before he gets executed, but there's something not quite right about him, you know, with all his physical contortions and everything. It's just a brilliantly unsettling performance that sets the tone of the sets the tone of the rest of the film. I don't know if you agreed with that. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I want to revisit is your comment about A24, because I actually do think you're right. I think if this was released now, you could very, very much see this coming under the banner of A24 movies. You know, it's very, very much almost kind of similar in story style to the, let's not call it traditional happy endings, and I don't want to spoil the ending, but it, the, the you know, the, the not so kind of everything wrapped up in a nice little bow kind of endings that you get with a lot of movies, but actually mm. when you look at A24 movies like Ex Machina, Midsummer, Uncut Gems, and especially Men, um, oh, you know, yeah. the Alex Garland film, um, there the is a very, very much a tonal kind of alignment with with a lot of what A24 films. I agree. I think if this was released today and it was under the A24 banner, people would be falling over themselves to praise this movie. Um, oh, yeah. You know, and, and, and let's, you know, quickly move on to what you said about the cast. And I mean, you know, the first kind of cast member that we kind of almost introduced to, apart from, um, you know, Denzel Washington, um, Edgar Reese, you know, is is one of the great character actors of, of modern times, which is Elias Katias. Oh, yeah. Uh, he really is. And, and, you know, and immediately when you, you're introduced to him in this movie, he, he almost steals the show. He's such a fabulous actor, is is, is Katias. I mean, one of my favourite films that, that he's in is... Um, was actually, I think it's done the same year as Forward. So I think he was, he was in a bit of a... Um, a golden period was mm. was Elias Katias because he 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 made a bit of a name for himself in Crash um, a couple of years earlier. But actually, the the 
the kind of the standout role that he'd had along with Fogg was the thin red line, which is actually one of you know, I'll probably class it in one of my top ten oh, yes. um, favorite movies. I absolutely adore Malik's The Thin Red Line. And um you know, and Ellis Catias plays a wonderful part in that as the kind of almost you know, the 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 leader of men sent up the hill who who doesn't want to send his men to die, but actually he's been barked orders at um you know down the line and he's put in a kind of almost impossible position. Um you know, which and and he just handles that role so well. So when you meet him in forward, you know, you've got you you can see what a lovely, versatile actor Elias Katias is um, in this role because you know he plays Edgar Reese with such gusto and such passion. Oh, yeah. You know, it's it's almost like one of those things in the wrong hands. Um that 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 performance would come across as a bit of a pantomime villain. Oh yeah, yeah. Completely. But, but actually, in in Elias's hands, you know, tr- you know, this is this is the sign of a truly great master of his craft. Is Katia um, <laughs> smashes it out of the park, and and you know, and you really believe, you know, he is this evil kind of person, and you know, like I say, there's not many people out there who can you know go toe to toe with Denzel Washington on oh, screen. Yeah. But Elias Katia show, really shows that he can. And in that opening scene, I mean, we've got him kind of speaking multiple languages. He slips yeah. into Dutch and another mysterious language, which we later find out is uh, Syrian, Syrian Aramaic. And he also tries to do this. He tries to touch Denzel through a strange handshake. And as he's in the gas chamber, he is um, singing the Rolling Stones song, Time is on my side. Which, which, which prompts- you know... Yeah, it, it becomes a lovely recurring motif, doesn't it? It does, the yes. Um, it's it's one of those kind of things within the film that I bet when the screenwriters came upon this idea of having this, let's call it a tell. It's the tell, isn't it? It's like yeah. in, in poker, you often talk about tells. And this is almost like the shameful, obvious tell. But, oh, it's, yeah. such, but it's done, used so playfully throughout the film that is it's great when when you see somebody kind of you know when later on in the movie when james gondolfini starts singing it it's oh, yeah. such a lovely taunt if you like because it's something that could easily come off as cheesy like the scene later on which will come on to when gandolfini starts singing it that could come across as very cheesy and unintentionally humorous but it's to the strength of i mean the director gregory hoblet who directed other um, thrillers, acclaimed thrillers around at the same time, such as Primal Fear. And, you know, it's, it's to, to his credit and the credit of the cast and to the crew that it manages to come across as chilling hearing this Rolling Stones song being sung by multiple people. It yeah, just... and, and so, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, but I think Gandolfini, I think this is a testament I think you're right. I think a lot of it is in the direction, but I think also it's it's testament to the wonderful stable of actors oh, and yeah. acting talent that's in this film. And Gandolfini, I mean, you've got to remember Gandolfini at this point in his career, um, you, you know, kind of almost the mid nineties, you know, w- was a bit part actor. You oh know, yeah, he'd, he'd cut his teeth. You know, in the guy kind of like the eighties and, and early nineties, very much on Broadway. You know, he and uh, you know doing Street Kind and Desire and on the Water. Because this and, was um, pre-Sopranos, wasn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, he I think, you know, one of his early movie performances, um, I'm not sure whether it was his first one, it's certainly in the first handful, was in True Romance. Oh, you yeah. know, which came around about six years before this. And and so he, he did a number of smaller roles, like um I know he was in Crimson Tide, he's in Get Shorty, yeah, and things oh, he's like good that. At that. Um, you know, and I think Get Shorty was the one where he started to receive some accolades. So yeah. his casting in in this is kind of like very much it aligns with the time that the Sopranos came out. I think Sopranos came out about a year early. So he could only really do bit parts in movies because of his commitment to the Sopranos. Um, you know, but he, you know, Gandolfini was one of those characters um, where every time he's on screen, he's just magnetic. He really is. You know, in the game, you know, we talk about Denzel Washington's persona as well, but Gandolfini had it. He had that magic. Um, I always remember um, in the movie Killing Them Softly, the Brad Pitt oh, movie, yeah, he's great where that. he plays the assassin, yeah, and he's just brilliant in it. You, you know, it, as soon as he kind of comes on screen, he's, he, you know, he just owns it. It's like it's effortless for him. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There's, I mean, the scene actually following the execution scene where he sort of grills Hobbs on his incorruptibility. Hobbs is meant to be a pure cop, doesn't take yeah. any bribes, you know, is genuinely dedicated to his job. And the way Gandolfini needles him in the bar is just is just a sign of that kind of scene scene steal it's just an example of that scene stealing performance ability that you mentioned. Yeah, and I think you know, this is you know, it's almost like it shows, it demonstrates what great actors can do with material because you know, if you if you sometimes when you, you see scripts and they're just not directed very well or performed very well. Um, it, you know, it really, you know, the words on the page are the words on the page, and they will kind of, you know, there is a certain amount of improv that goes on within movie production as well. And you can imagine that probably there was a little bit of improv going on here. And, and you know, you've got Gandolfini and Denzel, two great actors, you know, come from the stage kind of environment, <clears throat> you know, will be used to workshopping, scenes and we'll have done rehearsals where they you know whether they practice this scene before they went into the camera so you can imagine that the seal the, the scene was very very tight oh yeah um before they shot it and, and they'll have done that scene 20 or 30 times in rehearsals and and you've got two masters of the crafts i mean it's always a shame that gandolfini died when he did oh he, yeah you know, he, he died pretty young from what from what i remember you know i think he was only like early 50s yeah um you know, so he really was taken from us too soon, you know, similar to um, Philip Seymour Hoffman and, and things like oh, that, yeah. you know, one of the greats of American stage who transitioned on the screen. Um, and, yeah, I, you know, listen, look, you know, he he will go on to, to star in some really memorable movies um, was Gandolfini. Um, but, you know, you're right, it, it, you know, that scene in the bar is just great. And another, um, and another sort of um, great character actor who I don't know if he's a character actor really, but we were introduced to in the opening scene is Donald Sutherland as uh, Denzel Washington's boss. I now, mean, that... Donald Sutherland. I mean, <laughs> you, you know, he's 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 almost like acting royalty, isn't he? 
Yeah, I mean, what did you think of his character of um, Denzel Washington as Denzel Washington's boss, Stanton? Because he's played in a very ambiguous way. Yeah, so, you know, with movies like this, you'll always get a number of red herrings. It, you know, one of the wonderful things about it is the that the characters are painted in strokes that, that give ambiguity. And I think that's very much where Donald Sutherland's character is painted. It's a misdirection character, mm. I would call it. You know, you always need in movies like this. You can't have it so linear. You know, it's not like the Fast and the Furious films where you can oh, almost no. signpost what's going to happen in the movie from the opening scenes. All oh, right, yeah, oh, you no. know, they're going to start out as enemies, they're going to be friends, blah, 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 blah. But this, you're introduced to a, a wealth of characters, and several characters, and there's a certain ambiguity about them because you need that in the first kind of quarter, the first third of the film to kind of keep you guessing as to, right, well, who is the good guys? Who are the bad guys? Can we really trust these people? You know, all of these things play within the subconscious. And I think, it, you know, that's what Donald Sutherland's role is within this. You know, and you've got to remember as well, around about this time, Sutherland was was actually having a little bit of a career kind of revival. You know, he'd he'd played small parts in like JFK and you know Outbreak and things like that. But that actually, you know, was actually being held up at this point as you know as one of the the old greats of Hollywood. Yeah. And, you know, was very much wheeled into movies. You know, to to add gravitas, like if you he, like. like he gave a great performance as the villain in, in I think it was a Backdraft, was it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as the um, as the oh, I can't remember what the cat is. It the shadow, or oh no, he called he called Robert De Niro's character the shadow, didn't he? Uh, yeah, yes, he did. Yeah, yeah he, he he was basically the the arsonist, wasn't he? And and it was it was such a kind of surprise to see him in that role because you know, and it, it shows you know the great versatility of, of of Donald Sutherland that you know he can play such an evil kind of twisted character. Um, like that, but also can then play, you know, what he did in many of his older, later movies, which was the kind of the the grandfatherly, the fatherly kind yes. of figure that he does in the mechanic and and the the remake of the Italian job. Oh yeah, he's... you know, he he plays the old wise head. Um, and then, of course, later on, you get him in as the out and out villainous President Snowman, the Hunger Games films, going yeah. completely into villainous territory. Yeah, and, and you know he's you know like his son. I mean, I, I do think Kiefer is is a very underrated actor as as well, and was unfortunately tarnished a lot with the Brat Pack kind of name. Um, but actually, Kiefer is a very very good actor, and you know you look at Donald Sutherland's body of work. I mean, you know, I always remember his his um, his turn in Mash. I always loved Mash, but my, my favorite one. Uh, of his early films, his Kelly's Heroes. Oh yeah, um, you, you know I think he plays a character oddball. Yes, he, like he, does. Yeah, he does. He, he yeah, plays he oddball. Does. He does, and he's just brilliant in it. You know, he's you know, and and it really shows the versatility of, of some of these actors that they can go from comedic to villainous. You know, and 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 do every character in between. Well, speaking of great um, character actors, we've also got a third one in the form of John Goodman as uh, Hobbs's loyal partner, Jonesy. And, I mean, the chemistry he has with Denzel can be established in 
their first scene together at the bar post execution, where he sticks up for, he, st- he where he stands up to um, James Gandolfini by basically telling him to shut the fuck up. And right there, um, I mean, I think Good- Goodman really establishes the character. I would argue that the character of Jonesy should be up there with um, the character of Walter in The Big Lebowski, which Goodman made the same year in terms of performance quality. I, I don't know what you think. I, mean, I love John Goodman. I, I've got to be honest. I mean, I was, I always remember growing up, you know, I was born in 74, so I was about 14 or something like that, you know, yeah. in, into my early teens when I first discovered Roseanne. Um, and, you know, you'd, you'd be on the surface of it with Goodman, you'd be quite right in thinking that he was just a, um, a kind of almost a, a kind of a capable comedic soap actor. You, you know, he, he was almost, you know, you bear in mind, Roseanne gave career breaks to people like George Clooney and, and stuff. So, you know, John Goodman, you know, a lot of people, certainly in the UK, would have known him through Roseanne. Um, you know, but actually then you start seeing him pop up in Raising Arizona, he's in Barton Fink, he's in The Big Lebowski, he's in, you know, uh, Oh Brother, Where Out Thou. He has a fantastic role in Spielberg's Always. Yes, OK, he, he did some shockers with King Ralph and, and the Flintstones and Blues Brothers 2000, oh, which, yeah. you know, I think was his, probably his commercial kind of peak. Um, you know, but when you go into his body of work and you look at him on the screen, he is a fantastic actor. I mean, you know, he's one of those weird kind of actors where almost like in, in, in the modern day Hollywood, you couldn't probably see him getting the career that he's had, you know, because he'd probably be overlooked. Oh, completely. It's become very uh, homogenized these days because of stable of big name actors that you get now. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's almost like sometimes you kind of despair at Hollywood's obsession sometimes with beauty and looks and, mm. and things like that. And But actually, it's always encouraging then when you see true character actors like John Goodman come through. You, think, you know, it's, it's almost similar to, um, you know, Toby Jones's kind of career and, and, and people like that, you know, where they're not traditionally you know, good-looking actors or anything like that. But actually, we need actors who look like John Goodman, who look like James Gandolfini, you know, who can play believable characters within movies like Fallen. Yeah, absolutely. And now, moving on now to the visual aspects of the film, when um, Edgar Reese gets executed, we start to see the camera zooming away from him and some strange kind of didgeridoo type music playing, which I think is on a didgeridoo, and that represents the actual cause for his 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 killing spree, which is the fallen angel or the demon Azazel. Now, the way this is depicted is they shot the POV shots of Azazel, which is all we see of the demon, um, using I think something like an ectochrome sixteen millimeter camera, and it's this really sort of, and you get these really sort of alien perspective shots, which look very grainy and very sort of yellow. It's the closest that the film comes to actually depicting something otherworldly, because the film otherwise has a very sort of low key visual style, similar to sort of like a, a toned down version of um, a crime thriller like Seven. 
and accompanying yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and, and accompanying it is this very sort of. I guess I guess Australians would maybe find it very funny, but it's this sound which is actually a didgeridoo playing. Um, used this is um, sort of um, used by the composer of the film uh, Tan Dun, who composed the score later for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and both his kind of um, decisions in scoring the film and this sort of POV visual effect really sort of take a unique approach to portraying sort of demonic uh, uh, this demonic figure that hasn't that kind of avoids the usual Hollywood cliches of glowing eyes and it's an approach I find really refreshing I mean Tandon score later on in the film not only combine uses makes heavy uses of saxophones which you get a lot with sort of bleak sort of film noir kind of scores but it also makes excellent uses of instruments like the Chinese Erhu during a pivotal death scene that will come on to later, which really helps make the film stand out. I mean, I don't know what you think about what I've just said just now. I mean, I absolutely agree. And you know, Newton Thomas Siegel, who um, who did the cinematography, I actually wonder whether uh, the actual point of reference for for the, cin- for the cinematography kind of elements that you're talking about um, is actually Alien Three. Um, mm. So I, I do wonder whether that that has an influence on it because yeah. in Alien Three we very much for the first time see the aliens' perspective of yes, and I, and I do wonder whether you know that 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 played a huge influence. Now listen, look, you know, Alien Three stole that from various other kind of movies. You know, you could even hark back to Evil Dead. Uh, you know that that actually the, the cinematography effect is, is taken from that, which in game so taken from other movies. But um, the treatment that you have, you know, almost this floating kind of you know mm. treatment, it does feel very similar to Alien Three to me. Now, now would that have swayed some critics um, in in arming them with more material to um, stab the film with potentially? Don't know, but I, I agree with you. Uh, you know, it provides a wonderful effect, and and you know immediately what what you're seeing. So, um, I actually think it's a very interesting creative choice by the filmmakers to to do that. Moving on to the score, I mean, the score is wonderful, isn't it? it the score oh, yeah. is one of those things where it feels like it calls from many kind of different cultures. Yes, um, and 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 I just want to talk about um, the idea of um, scores having a concept so mm. one of the things that's always interested me is um is Hans Zimmer's approach to scores where he will always use instruments that basically um align with the movie's concept so um if you just bear with me for a second so if, for example if you look at Interstellar you know yes. which is very much about a film set in the heavens yes you know? and so you have the organ no- Exactly. So, you know, so he almost like has, has that, and, you know, if you look at June's score, which is very much, you know, about the desert. So he calls upon kind of, you know, Middle Eastern kind of influences. And, 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 and you see that throughout his career, you know, Dunkirk is a race against time. So, you know, there's very much a ticking motif throughout the entire film. Uh, and then obviously it's very British. So he calls upon, you know, some, some real kind of staples of, of British kind of classical music, such as Nimrod, and and you and, and I do wonder whether this is an early example 
of a composer looking at the origins of uh, uh, of, of the kind of the the the, um, the devil in the film, yes. and looking at kind of where the you know where it's kind of come from, and taking elements of you know of kind of like um, you know music influence from those kind of almost historical elephants, uh, elephant element elephants, elements, yeah, elements. Like that bit <laughs> elements of the of the score, you know, going into you know the kind of the, almost the history of of um, you know Azazel, and you know looking at where it's kind of come from, you know, and yeah. um, the whole kind of relationship to the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, you, you know, and, and and in Judaism and various other kind of things, and then in Christianity and Islam, and and it almost seems to pull across all these kind of different musical influences from from various different cultures into this melting pot of a score. So that's why I kind of almost see this as an early example of a score being a concept that relates to something within the film. Because it also links into the fact, into the fact that Azazel has no real corporeal form. I mean, as we see in a scene, in another earlier scene, we see Azazel possess a nearby um, prison guard who then sort of goes off on his way home from work to pick up a, a hot dog and then ends up passing on the demon to multiple other people of different ethnicities and of different kind of body types until he sort of rests on the um, the body of hot dog worker Charles. And I guess and the score can be seen to reflect the multicultural nature of the demon because Azazel can be a tall white guy, he it it's it's rather it can be a tall white guy, it can be a fat black woman, it could be a small um Asian child, it can be anything. And it almost reflects the the score almost reflects the kind of that sort of threat of Azazel, that Azazel can literally be anybody, that it it isn't just it doesn't just take the form of a horned, winged, <laughs> red, massive red demon that we're so familiar with. That could easily exactly. a form yeah. that could be touched and attacked. Yeah, and and you know, and it's a nice little callback to um, you, you know the Azazel kind of being um, present throughout various kind of cultures within history um, as well. So you know, it's a lovely kind of little kind of touches touches that, and, and that scene that you're on about. Um, I actually remember seeing this movie. I think I actually saw it on DVD in in, in the late nineties, and. Um, and I always remember that scene. I always really loved that scene. I thought it was one of those scenes where it really adds a little bit of depth to the film and, and actually helps you to see um, what the actual threat is. Yes. Um, you know, because when you get these kind of what we'll call body-hopping horror sort of thing or body-hopping thrillers, you know, the, the idea of body-hopping, um, has long been a staple of kind of like, you know, Hollywood kind of thrillers and horrors. You know, you can look to movies like The Thing. I always remember there's a fantastic Cal McLachlan horror uh, or action horror um, in the 80s called The Hidden. Oh, um, yeah. And, um, you know, and I kind of almost see that, that this is very much, you know, the possession element of, of that. And it really kind of... Um, underscores and, and I guess ramps up the threat of oh, what yeah. Denzel Washington is facing. 
Oh yeah. Um, one of the other things I like about, about about the possession is when anybody is possessed by Azazel, they express it in very subtle ways. Like you would expect based on Elias Katias's performance in the beginning of the film, that everybody who was possessed by Azazel would be very over the top and contorting their body. And ah, it would all be very over the top. But when, but it's, but the way the individual person expresses that they're possessed by Azazel is based on their characteristics. So when Charles, who was a mild-mannered hot dog store worker, is possessed by Azazel, the first thing he does is he's rude to his boss. That's how he shows he's possessed. And of course, later on, we see that different people possessed by Azazel express express their possession in 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 subtle, di- subtly different ways that are suited to their character rather than this one size fits all. Everybody who's possessed by Azazel must contort their limbs in Babylon in Syrian Aramaic, which I really liked. It really shows the kind of subtle insidiousness of the threat. It doesn't sort of signpost that somebody's possessed by Azazel and it doesn't make Denzel look like an idiot for not catching on sooner. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's one of the the things that the film needs to do to kind of let the audience know, um, you know, where they're up to and who Azazel is possessing, Um, you know. But it also kind of rewards um, those people who are paying attention. You know, you can imagine... Um, you know, somebody who was watching this with a passing kind of interest would very much kind of like, who, right, who's possessed now and, and things like that. But, um, you, you know, the, I like, you know, the idea of the subtle tell, um, mm. you know, that we mentioned before is is a lovely part of this because, you know, it's important for these kind of horrors to work and, and these kind of situations to work. You know, you go back to the thing mm. where you really don't know who is possessed, and you can oh, yeah. argue that you know, um, you, you know, it, it's all in consuming that you know that part of the reason why that movie works is there is no tell. Um, oh, yeah. But actually, you know, I think this this film and the characters, and you need to know the tell because there's no other way of knowing. Um, you know, in the thing, obviously, you, you know, the blood experiment reveals um, who who is the thing, but. In this, you need a little tell, you know, the little kind of clues that, um, you know, quite subtle to kind of maintain interest and and reward the audience for paying attention. And it's also a good way of signalling, you know, when when Azazel is near in, in sort of like an ordinary street scene. Like, for example, there's a scene later on where... Denzel is alerted to the presence of Azazel by, well, well, two times, by somebody saying time is on, time is on your side. The time is on my side, rather. Yeah, and and you know, and it's like what we were saying earlier. You know, when the screenwriters came up with this little, with this tell, uh, you know, the most obvious tell, um, and it's almost like a, it's a taunt. It's used yes. as a taunt for, for for Denzel, isn't it? You know, it's kind of almost like yes, it's needed to make the plot happen and, and to make elements happen, um, but actually, it's, it's used in a very kind of clever way and. You know, I'm pretty sure it didn't do much harm to the Rolling Stones' um, you know, royalties on, on, oh, on no. that song. You know? So, but um, but it's used in such a wonderful way. I mean, listen, it could be any song, you know, but actually the oh, yeah. time on my side aspect of the lyrics is a taunt to Denzel 
saying, look, I've been around for centuries, yeah, you know, and I'm going to be around for centuries more. So no matter what you're going to do, you ain't going to stop me, you know, and that's almost like the confidence in, in the horror. And that, that almost, if you like, probably sets Denzel's thinking as to what he needs to do at the end wow. to try and beat Isazel. Well, what I like about Azazel's whole MO is a large part of it is just him taunting Denzel. Like the first thing he does to alert Denzel of his presence is he rings him at the same time in the morning that Edgar Reese used to ring him up at when he was committing the murders. So immediately setting Denzel off to the fact that um that you know that that there's somebody out there committing the same kind of murders as Edgar Reese. And initially Denzel was led to believe that it's a copycat. And then of course later on there's a scene where Azazel possesses multiple members of staff in the police station just to taunt Denzel with the with the song Time is on Time is on my side. And he then and and it then later spreads to people outside on the street just to show just to show Denzel that what he's up against is around him. But he can't so just fix it one person. Yeah, so I wonder whether <clears throat> the reason why it does that is, you know, you, let's put ourselves in the shoes of his Azel for mm. and you know, this is a this is a spirit, a devil if you like, that's been around for centuries. Now if you've been alive for centuries and, and your MO your purpose in life is to possess and kill and you get a lot of enjoyment out of it you know when you when you meet an adversary who you know offers you a challenge you would toy with them you, you oh, know yes. you, you you're probably bored of of how easy it is to possess and kill people so actually when you meet somebody a foe who offers a mental challenge that you feel is worthy of your own then you know it's like any narcissist oh, you yeah. know enjoys kind of like playing and, and manipulating and, and causing harm and trouble for those that it feels intellectually superior to. And I think that's very much what uh, Azazel is. Azazel is a narcissist. It's oh, a narcissist completely. killer. It, it occupies, you know, sociopathic, um, it, you know, so, and I think this is where a lot of it comes from. It sees something in Denzel's character. His, that his kind it of moral, likes and wants to play with. Yeah, his kind of moral purity, his upstandingness as a person, which we see with his, with his interactions with his family, which is a very interesting family unit because we have a scene with him eating breakfast with his nephew, Sam, and his mentally disabled younger brother, Art. And it's that whole scene is very interesting in how it explains that whole family dynamic, this interesting family dynamic, which we don't usually get in those kind of films. Like usually you would expect it to be Denzel with a wife and kid, but instead it's this all male family dynamic. And the way it's set up is they, there's this um, exchange of dialogue between Denzel's character Hobbs and Art, where Art asks um, Hobbs if, if he's okay looking after both him and Sam and whether 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 they were both the reason for his girlfriend leaving, but the way they express it is so naturalistic, in so in such minimal use of dialogue, they use to establish this whole relationship, which nowadays 
I just feel like the setup nowadays for this kind of thing would be so clunky and it would be established in, throughout multiple scenes. And I just really like the way, the, the brevity of how this, this, this whole kind of scene is set up. It establishes Hobbes as a family man and it establishes this relationship. I, I don't know what your thoughts are on it. So I think in in all kind of movies where you've got to add the layers to a character and and you've got to basically add layers of what what's at stake for Hobbes, you, you know, there's there's always got to be something at stake, and and you know you want to define his character as pure, as a good man, and, and things like that. And I think this does a wonderful uh, job of that. And and you're right, you know. There's a certain ham-fistedness to modern script writing mm. where it's almost like they don't allow the viewer any kind of almost like, well, you know, let's treat the intel- the viewer in an intelligent way. I mean, there's some films that still still do it, but, you know, it's, it, it's a kind of almost like, you know, the things that <laughs> – the message that this movie sends with that scene actually happen in the moments where there's no dialogue. Oh, and, yeah. and it's almost like – People have forgotten, modern filmmakers have forgotten that actually sometimes, you know, the great things happen when things are unsaid and it's about looks and it's about, you know, that feeling that you get from when actors are bouncing off each other and they create that familiarity. So you're right, you, you know, it's it's a wonderful scene is that. Um, and it's basically, you know, listen, it's basically used to up the stakes, to, to show, you know, give Denzel motivation and actually also show... Um, you know, add more depth to his character, and also it, and also it serves to draw parallels between Den, Denzel's character and one of Azazel's previous victim, a cop called Milano, whose name, whose name isn't on the police kind of official board, and Azazel kind of draws Hobbs to this omission through through a great use of clues. Again, I really like how they use clues in this movie it, it almost seems in many ways it's actually like a mystery narrative where Azazel leaves this cryptic clues like in the case of the omission of Milano's name it's what's uh, find the space between Lyons and Spakowski and of course that's on on the police board but Denzel doesn't realize that initially when it's written on graffiti next to Azazel's next victim's body and I, I like the, uh, just to go slightly off on a tangent in the film's narrative, I really like how the film's narrative emphasises clue solving and unravelling the mystery behind Azazel and the murders, rather than just rather than just on simple blood and gore type murder set pieces that you would expect from a film about the devil. I mean, I don't know what you think. So... What you're what you're talking about here is the reveal, and 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 what you like to kind of call is you know it usually happens um, around about three quarters of the way through the movie where there's an aha moment, um, and it's like where the our protagonist pieces everything together and reveals. Now, at the time, we've got to remember that Usual Suspects came out a few years before this movie, mm. and I do think this is probably something where the critics also were given some almost a weaponry, if you like, to, to, to stick against this movie, is that it's very, very much feels like it's taken from the usual suspects is, is, um, is some of the clues. And, you know, when you when you think about how Chaz Palamentary, um, you know, understands 
you know, who Kaiser Soze is in in the in Usual Suspects is very much about oh, he's looking around the room and he realizes that he's pieced the story together from various bits of things that are on the wall. And you know, and, and it's almost kind of like that detective analysis that happens here uh, with Denzel's Washington's character and, and finding Milano in that. You know, it's almost like, right, okay, I'm taking a step back, I'm looking at everything in front of me, yeah. and oh, it's the aha moment. And it, and it's done to make the plot happen. You, you know, it's it, it's a tried and trusted trope of Hollywood filmmaking where, you know, the, the detective now suddenly reflects, yes. uses his skill, and, and almost kind of has that moment of calm where but all it, of a sudden all the pieces come together and he gets it. But it's almost, but it's always... But it's so much subtle and cerebral in comparison to other demonic films of the time. And think you've lost souls, that god awful Kim Basinger film, um, Bless the Child, um, the Arnold Schwarzenegger fight Satan film, End of Days, which focus so much on bombastic scenes of you know demonic possession and on and and very much on big set pieces. Whereas this film is very much a procedural mystery with Hobbes gradually trying to put the pieces together, which is, I mean, I find it so much more refreshing, but it's also, it, it, it's its just got more of a gradual kind of cerebral pace to it that these films lack. And I like that, that the director and the writer didn't go for, you know, the obvious temptation to rely on bombast because they could so easily have just have had multiple scenes of, you know, Azazel-possessed victims grabbing onto Hobbes and going, yeah, I'm coming after you. But the fact that they don't do that, the fact that they have so many sequences of Hobbes, you know, going searching on the internet, you know, backed by a saxophone score is, I mean, you could argue it's a very sort of brave thing to do for a, a Hollywood film, but it's it's an approach I really value. Yeah, and I agree with you. So, one of the things that, you know, when we talk about, you usually find that Hollywood um, will release kind of similar movies around about the same time that have a kind of similar tropes happening. And um, and I think this is the case here because what you're right, you're saying, you know, when you look at my like end of days, you know, it's very much a, right, okay, well, this is Arnie trying to, you know, try and become a bit of a serious actor, you know, here he is, he's an alcoholic, you know, you, when you first kind of meet him, he's shoving little bits of waste food into oh, a blender yeah. and he drinks so it. Cheesy. You know. so yeah, cheesy. Yeah, it's, it's so bad, isn't it? You know, and, um, but obviously with that, you know, they obviously wanted to do a seven-type movie, Arnie in a seven-type movie, but we have to overlay it with action because it's an, it's an Arnie movie. You know, whereas here, what you're, what you're getting is, yes, a very much a cerebral kind of almost procedural kind of cop movie thriller. Um that that basically deals more in low key moments and and has a kind of killer ending and and I think to a certain degree it, it has very similar aspects in the same way of Arlington Road which came out about a year oh, later. Oh yes, um, you know, and the aforementioned Usual Suspects as well, where it's very much a movie about putting the pieces together, you know, and then getting to the aha moment. So you had a number of movies around about this time of you know kind of. 97, 98, 99 of, of this kind of almost seven-esque kind of movies, um, you know, that that basically where it's all about taking all the clues and putting them together to, to, to resolve the mystery. So, you know, I think this is where, again, 
maybe the critics went after Fallen because of this, but I actually don't think it harms the movie at all. Oh no! In fact, it's in fact it's sort of um, gradually sort of he sort of puts the audience in Hobbs' shoes really as they kind of uncover the mystery with him. Because what happens is, is that once Azazel possesses a person, not a new person, he then goes back, the, the possessed person goes back and kills the host body, the, kills the former host body. And after two such murders pile up and, and you know, Azazel leaves clues for Hobbes, deliberately trying to lead him to discover Azazel's identity, Hobbes is then sort of, Hobbes then through research discovers that there was a, that, that there was um, another person who was targeted by Azazel, a another upstanding cop called Milano, who was the exact same as Hobbes, an upstanding family man, who was driven to kill himself in a cabin, and um, and Hobbes later and Hobbes of course come and Hobbes um, of course travels up to this cabin, and it's a fantastic use of um, one autumnal scenery. But also shows how, with minimal use of jump scares, great the director Gregory Hoblet and you know creates a sort of menacing atmosphere as Hobbes discovers um, Azazel's identity, which Milano has written about, has written about on the walls of his cabin, and has and and of course finds a book of de- a book about demons, but that that Milano has sort of hidden. And it's just a great scene of Denzel just pacing through this abandoned shack. All the while, there's just very subtle music playing. And it's something that you don't get much at all in modern day horror films is that sort of use of slowly building up tension and atmosphere. And it's just, it, it just feels like a lost art at this point in this modern day kind of cinema landscape. I mean, I'm trying to think of what a similar moment would be like in a modern day film. And I think, and I can't think of one. I think it would just involve a lot more jump scares, a lot more shots, a a lot more sort of of going into flashback shots of Milano struggling with the demon. And it just wouldn't work at all. I mean, would you agree? I think what what you're talking about there, Adam, is very much what you mentioned before about A24. I think the only kind of studio that are doing these sorts of kind of endings and the slow unveil and, you know, letting the movie slowly un- unravel itself is A24. You know, the, the ending of this movie and those kind of final moments and that, that whole kind of final scene in the cabin, you know, there's there's very much a, um, it owes a huge debt to the ending of the thing, you know, with, with just two characters talking. Um, it, you know, I think there's... Um, you know, there's there's other, you know, we come from the, the best horror movies and the best kind of thriller movies work because they don't have happy endings. You, you know, they because the unhappy ending basically goes against what we want to see happen in the film. We want to know that everything's going to be all right in the end. But actually things that life isn't like that. You know, and things aren't going to be all right in the end. And sometimes the bad guys do win and you know, we mentioned Darlington Road, you know, there's similarities with the ending here, um, you, you know, with, with and you know, it's the same with Usual Suspects as well, you know, essentially the bad guy wins. Um, you know, so, and, and you're right, you, you know, I think there's a lot of almost like impatience 
that's happening with modern movie making where they don't treat the audience with uh, much intelligence. Everything's got to be signposted. Everything's got to be wrapped up in a nice sort of bow. Actually, the only ones who are doing something interesting here, you know, if you look at the ending of Midsummer, for example, you, you know, which is very, very much kind of owes a huge debt to um, the Wicker Man, but you know, Ex Machina, for example, you know, Uncut Gems, you, you know, the movies that I <coughs> talked about previously by A24, you know, where they treat the audience with intelligence, they don't answer every question for you, they leave some things unanswered, um, but actually they take their time to unveil the ending. And and I think that's why, you know, you hit the nail on the head, where it's it very much, if this was released now as an A24 movie, people would be falling over it. I mean, there's also, speaking of the ending, the the ominous, the, the, the narrate, there's narration that occurs throughout the film from Denzel, which is very ambiguously worded. And... I'm, and we'll come on to the reveal of, of the narrator's identity later on. But I just think that's a great that's a great way of introducing this sort of unconscious foreshadowing into the audience's mind. That you just, you know, preparing them almost for, for the rug pull at the end that you just don't get anymore, even in films with sort of the, the films we have nowadays with downbeat endings. And I think that's a great um, sort of decision and variety to have this, you know, seemingly hard-boiled narration playing throughout, which we think is, oh, this is just Denzel telling us his, his thought processes. But then we later find out that there's something more to that. And I just think that's a great example of of, of the narrative intelligence that you were talking about there. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because... <clears throat> On one hand, you can look at it like that. On the other hand, you can look at it as the studio execs shit the bed when they when they saw when they did the test screen. I don't know. And, I know, don't know. And, they, and, and there's and there's a, a kind of almost a, right. We need to add. We need to add some narration on this, like we did with Blade Runner. You know, I, I, I always I always wonder whether narration is used because studio execs. I'm worried that the audience won't get it. But I think this is one of the rare occasions where it actually works. Because it um, adds it adds sort of like a, a further twist of the knife into the audience's yes. guts, so to yeah. speak. Yeah, so I do wonder whether this is one of those rare occasions where within the filmmaking process, people got to the end of the movie and the end of the edit and said, oh, we need some narration here. We need, we need, we need another element. Um, and actually, it works, you know, where a lot of people would argue, I, I, don't get me wrong, I actually prefer the original theatrical cut of Blade Runner with Ford's narration in it, because that's the one that I grew up with. That's the one that I watched late night on TV. But, so when they, when Ridley Scott started messing with it and took it off, I actually think it harmed the film. And I actually think here in Forward, <clears throat> with that narration, it needs it to add weight into the ending yes. because it makes you think everything's going to be all right for yeah. Denzel Washington's character. And and that's where he's, oh, it's going to be all right. Denzel's going to be fine. He's all right. Denzel's going to be fine. And yeah. I wonder whether what follows then is one of the reasons why it harmed the movie's box oh, office. Because yes. got to remember, you know, there were very, very few, you know, we're talking, you know, <clears throat> we're talking late 90s here. And there are very, very few 
black American leading men yes. at this time. You, you know, so, and I think probably the only other leading man at this time uh, was Will Smith. Yeah, and he was just starting out at the time. He was he wasn't yeah. yet he wasn't yet established as he would be a few years later. Yeah, I mean, he probably. I mean, I mean, I don't know what year. Um, I mean, Bad Boys came out ninety five. Yeah, but but Bad Boys wasn't like a massive blockbuster. No, movie. no, true. But uh, when did he do Men in Black? Men in Black was ninety seven. So, yeah, Men in Black was ninety seven. Yeah. So I think you know he. You could argue that he was certainly at his pop. Corn peak, you know, he was very much a fresh Prince of Bel Air, moves into into act, into movie acting, does you know Independence Day, um, you know Wild Wild West, and and you know Bad Boys, and then you know and, and, and you know all the. I mean, I think Independence Day was ninety six, yes. Enemy of the State was... ninety eight. So you can argue he's at his popcorn height, um, and you know and. You want to go, and Denzel's movies around about this time, you know, remember, in fact, he's, he's done Crimson Tide, yeah. uh, you know, which wasn't exactly, didn't set the box office alive. Oh, um, oh, oh right, was it, was that yeah, not I think a King, can, Yeah, I think Crimson Tide bombed, from what I remember. Ah, right. Um, you, you know, but, you know, he's, he's coming off the back of Philadelphia, um, you, you know, where he's really na- made his name, you know, he did the hurricane um, and things like that. So, you know, you've got Will Smith and, and Denzel Washington who are very much Hollywood's leading black actors. Now, Will Smith was very much popcorn, live oh, entertainment. Yes. Yes, you know, but Denzel much. Washington's your Sidney Poitier. He's a serious actor. Yes. But equally, bad things don't happen to him. And this is probably one of the only films that I can remember uh, of the time. I mean, you'd have to get to training day before he, he plays a... You know, um, a you bad know, character. A, a bad character. So, I wonder whether this is one of the things that harmed its box office because uh, yeah. people didn't want to see something bad happen to Denzel. Yeah. Now let's put that to one side and come back to that at the end of this yes. podcast because I think it's something that we really need to talk about. And and moving on to where we are in the plot wise. Denzel also discovers that Milano had a daughter called Greta, who works as a professor of um, theology at the local university. Now, when he talks to Greta, initially she sort of warns him to stay away, but he then discovers that not only does she know of the existence of Azazel, she informs him about Azazel, and Azazel's plan is to target vulnerable humans and and lead them to end up taking their lives, ruining their lives, and 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 leading them to to take their own lives as what happened to her dad. She is also a member of an organization that is intended to push back against Azazel and other fallen angels like him. Now, this is something that if this film were made 10 years later, they would have gone into this in so much detail, like with the Da Vinci Code. The main plot would have been um, Hobbes and Greta um, teaming up along with this organisation to take down Azazel, and it would be much more action-packed. But the film doesn't go in this direction at all. It only hints at this organisation. We never see the organisation outside of the character of Greta. And it's it reminds me, in a way, of the film Stir of Echoes, where... One of the characters in that goes to this secret organization for help, 
but this secret organization is is then never shown again and mm-hmm. it's just interesting in it shows where the priorities of storytelling were in the late 90s and the fact that you could that 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 the that the direction was really more towards telling a smaller scale story involving these kind of supernatural elements or kind of religious elements, whereas, you know, 10 years later, it would have been much more of an action blockbuster. It's just, I, I found that, I found that approach to M. Beth Davids's character kind of fascinating. I'm, you know, what, what are your thoughts? So it's almost like <clears throat> she's there to serve a plot point and to, you know, provide backstory ultimately, you, you know, that's what M. Beth Davids's role is, is within this movie. She, she's there to provide backstory and and add weight to the character and almost help Denzel realize the threat of what he's going up against. So listen, Embeth Davis is a is a is an interesting one. She's she's one of those people who's appeared in a lot of movies that you know of, but actually yeah. you 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 basically she disappears into characters. I mean, you know, memory of she darkness. Played, she's yeah, well, she's darkness. Hirsch in Schindler's List. Yeah. Well, I... which is while it's only a small role it's actually a very, very important role. You know, the role yes. that she 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 played with uh, Eamon Ghost's kind of life and, you know, and she's very much seen as a survivor. Um, it, you know, but she, it shows what a brilliant actress she is in, in such a small role that I oh, still yeah. remember her role within that, you know, when, when we first meet her, she's in the lineup, she's shaking, oh, yeah. she's so cold and, and things like that. So, you know, and then she, she appears in, you know, various kind of other smaller roles throughout, throughout film history, you know, I mean, she's in Bridget Jones's diary and, and things like that as well. But, you know, but I think here her role is very much to provide backstory, to help Denzel realise what he's going up against. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's almost a functional story role. But she gives so but she much. She smashes it. But she yeah, smashes it. Yeah, she gives so much depth to that character, which would otherwise be either an exposition device or, in the hands of an even lesser filmmaker, a love interest for Denzel, because there's no, there's no sort of real romantic attraction between Denzel and and M. Beth Davids's characters. But it's interesting that, I mean, but but it's interesting the choices that M. Beth Davids makes with the character, like she really portrays the the traumatised kind of aspect of Greta, knowing that, oh no, once again, she's being sucked into the same situation that, that you know, affected her father 30 years ago and how she's trying to avoid all of that. Um, and it particularly comes across after a scene where she gets attacked by Azazel. I think it's one of the few scenes involving Azazel going after somebody but doesn't involve Denzel. But there's a scene where people sort of touch each other because Azazel is transmitted from one person to the next like a virus through human contact and you've got people touching each other's hands to pass Azazel on as she's running down the street and afterwards we see her completely shaken up in a church saying she thought that if she devoted herself to religion that she would have been able to avoid all of this and you know that, you know, and Beth Davids really brings so much depth to that scene that, you know, could easily have been played as a very sort of one note, sort of note of terror by a lesser actress. But it really shows how the film, you know, makes great use of all these sort of supporting 
character actors, you know, um, Elias Katias, John Goodman, um, Donald Sutherland and M. Beth Davids, how, you know, these great character actors are used to such fantastic effect, how their acting abilities are really utilised instead of going for the latest name du jour. And I think it's it's what really adds a level of depth to this film that makes it stand out from so many other 90s thrillers of the time. Yeah, I mean, the, the scene that you're on about is is almost used as well to to really ramp up the threat of oh, yeah. and 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 you know show what a formidable foe people are up against and you know and 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 it's a, it's you know it's a chase sequence you know um but but actually you know he's done in a way to kind of make people realize that this really is a formidable foe and 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 all of these kind of little moments with Azazel, the body hopping and, and, and things like that, and the taunting and things like that, is you know, you've got to imagine that Azazel, while it's it's ethereal, you know, it's, it's it, you can't touch it, it's it's you know, and it hops between things, you know, it's very much a spirit. But it is written as a as a real life kind of character with flaws and oh, yeah. personality and you know, and and actually, you know, that's a wonderful kind of part of this film and um, and Beth Davids, you know, that scene, you know, it shows what a great actress she is. He, you know, Hollywood is full of women underutilized within movies. Oh, and, yeah, completely. Um, and, oh, and, yeah, and completely. And Beth Davids completely. is, you know, she should have she should have shined a lot brighter after her performance in um in Shingles List because she she really does disappear into the character and she gives a fantastic you know, humanistic kind of performance. And um, and I think within this movie, you know, because she's such a wonderful actress, you can argue that she's very much underutilised, but actually you can also argue that she is utilised in the right way to make the story happen, to make the plot move on. Because it's interesting when you're talking about the threat of Azazel, because we don't actually see Azazel um, actually physically killing all that many people, because there's actually a surprising lack of blood and gore in this demonic possession um, horror thriller film, it's, I mean, the one scene we do see of Azazel killing somebody with um, neat, with poison filled needles, um, it's shot in a very much a kind of strobe light, kind of strobe light sort of jerky frames removed away. It's one of the few weaker moments of the film, actually. Um, but there's very little gore in the film. It's, you know, a lot of, the threat of Azazel was mostly told through exposition and again through the way the possessed individuals act. And it's a notable aversion from the usual tactic of kind of, you know, similar thrillers of the time, such as, say, Seven, which would be to use, you know, a, a certain amount of gore. And so, it, it's, it's a bold decision for the filmmakers to make. And you wonder if that maybe affected the box office because it's this sort of strange beast where although there's minimal gore it still gets its r rating a 15 rating if you're in the uk through the use of language so it almost falls in between this sort of pg ish kind of um teen friendly horror and a more darker gorier violent type of horror film it kind of falls somewhere in between and you wonder these two gap these two posts and you wonder if that's what confused critics at the time Potentially, yeah, but I would also argue that the best horror movies are the ones that play with the mind more than you do than you see what's on screen. You know, and and 
you know, the, the best lesson in cinema history for this are, are two movies. One is Jaws, um, you know, and the other one is, is Reservoir Dogs. You, you know, in Reservoir Dogs, the ear-cutting scene, you never see the ear cut off. But what that scene does is it, it you know, through the screams and the use of what's going on, it basically puts things in the mind. And what you create within your mind is far scarier and gorier than whatever, you know, the filmmakers could put on screen. And I, you know, in Jaws, for example, you don't actually see the shark actually attack somebody until the very ending of the film, you, you know, when, when, it, when it kills Robert Shaw. Up until that point, you've, you've basically seen other things. You haven't seen teeth be biting into blood you've seen a leg falling you've seen a head pop out of the boat you know you've seen a woman um you know attacked in the water but you don't know by what and the best horror movies play with the mind and i think this is why you'll find fallen resonates with you so much Mm. because it paints pictures within your mind about what's going on that that sets your mind imagination going now the problem is today with a lot of Hollywood and certainly a lot of, you know, the the kind of democratisation, if you like, of CGI and, and the fact that people can do effects pretty cheaply these days, is it's taken that element of wonder and playing with the subconscious out of it. It's almost like everything has to be on screen, you know, and, and you know, you look at kind of, you know, modern horror movies like the torture porn ones like Hostel and things like that, you know, it's almost like they revel in, in seeing what's happening up on screen. But I actually oh, yeah. think the best horrors work when you don't see stuff happening on screen. I mean, it's like there's a scene, um, there's, a, there's a scene where Denzel is pursued by somebody who by, by somebody who he, he suspects and knows to be possessed by Azazel. And it's just such a great use of psychological horror. Nothing actually happens. Like they don't come into contact with each other, but it's just Denzel being pursued being pursued in the dark by this person possessed by Azazel and the way it uses atmosphere, the way it, it, it kind of preys on Denzel's psychological vulnerability about, you know, is the person that he's walking past, you know, who he thinks he is, you know, is his, you know, is the person targeting him? Can it be anybody? It, it really makes great use of that kind of psychological uneasiness, both the script and the direction, and it's an approach that I really wish we had more of these days. I agree. You know, like I say to you, the, the best the best thrillers and horrors work when they play with with the audience's mind. You know, it, they they just do because what happens then is you develop an emotional attachment to the film. Um, you know, when when films throw everything up on screen, um, you know. It almost becomes like what a corn. I don't mean to be dismissive of Chinese food by calling this, but it's like Chinese food. You enjoy it while you're you're having it, but actually it's pretty forgettable afterwards. You, you know, whereas actually, the, the, you know, when you have a meal that's full of nuances of flavour and and evokes memories of, you know, your childhood and and you know and moments in your life, you know, and play with your mind more and your senses more. You have more of emotional attachment. You're willing to spend more money on it and, and, and things like that as well. And that's what the great movies do. 
great movies know how to tap into the emotions. Mm. They know how to tap into the subconscious. Yeah. They know how to play with the audience as well. You know, it's about the confidence of the script and the confidence of the filmmakers to do that. I actually almost think sometimes when you get a movie where everything's up on screen, it actually almost says more about the audience than it does about the filmmakers. It's oh, saying, yeah. you've got to be pretty stupid to watch a movie like this. You know, it's very much like, yeah. you know, it, it treats its audience as stupid and that everything's got to be up there and they don't have to think. But sometimes you need that in life. Sometimes you need movies like that. That's why the Fast and Furious movies are so popular. You know, it's why the screen movies are so popular because you don't really have to think. It's just up there and everything's done. Baldwin is a movie that makes you think, that plays with you, that, you know, that plays with the mind and paints pictures within the mind. I mean, you know, a group, and makes you and makes you think afterwards. Yeah, I mean, a great example of this manipulation it can be seen in the film itself, where Azazel kind of sets it up for Hobbs to be framed for to be framed for killing an innocent um, citizen because it's you know it, the, first of all Azazel possesses possesses Sam. No, yeah, yeah. First of all, yeah, the demon possesses Sam, then it possesses sort of Sam's friend. Um, which leads to um, which leads to art getting getting a black eye. Then it possesses another person who pulls out a, a gun on Hobbs, which leads to Hobbs shooting the person. Then it possesses a teenage girl who taunts Hobbs, and it's you can almost you can almost see Denzel's life crumbling before his eyes, and his acting during this whole scene is just. Fantastic! It really shows the, his growing vulnerability and his desperation to try and clear his name. And then, of course, so what you, yeah, of course, sorry. sorry. No, so what you're talking about here is what what we often call within movie um, things is is the dark night of the soul. You know, your hero has to be painted into a corner. You know, there there has to be a moment within the film where the stakes are up against him. Everything is always lost. And you're kind of like, how the hell are they going to get out of this? You know, it's like that. There, there has to be this because it makes the ending even more powerful. Um, you know, it makes the resolution feel like you know when we when we've achieved something that was great effort and we've come, you know, we've climbed up a huge mountain to to achieve something. The reward is is more is more um, rewarding ultimately, and you know, you see this time and time again, you know. Like it's a staple of you know if you've ever read the book um, Save the Cat you know where it talks about oh, the yeah. beach sheet about three quarters of the way through the beach sheet there is always the dark night of the soul where everything seems lost you know but actually it makes the reward and the ending of the film even more of an emotional triumph and and traditionally that you'd expect that the darker night of the, the darker the night of the soul the greater the sort of triumph would be for the protagonist at the end, because right after Hobbes is framed for the murder, he wakes up to to find that his brother has been killed by Azazel. And the scene, the way it's set up is just is just is just fantastic. First of all, it's in broad daylight with the sunlight shining in, as is this previous scene where um Azazel frames Hobbs for the murder, and a lot of the, a lot of the scenes um, involving Azazel actually actually are set during the daytime, including the scene where um, Hobbs is taunted by him by his colleagues in the police station, and it really adds to this idea that 
You aren't safe at any time, but the horror doesn't come out at night, but as Azel can get you during any time of the day. And it's just, just provides a great visual contrast to what Hobbes, you know, the horrors that Hobbes is finding himself being involved in. And But the, anyway, the whole scene plays out in almost dead silence until Hobbes um, discovers his brother's, walks through the, his empty house to discover his brother's dead body lying in bed. And we get a great scene where Denzel punches the wall and collapses onto the ground, um, reaching his darkest point as Tandon's score comes in with a great use of the Chinese instrument. I think it's called the Erhu, which really um, adds to the level, to the gravity of the emotional gravity of the situation. And it's just, it's just a fantastically staged sequence, which then sort of goes into Hobbes telling Sam about his dad's death and the way Sam and the way the scene is played is again it, it's very subtle we don't get sort of Hobbes sort of yelling at Sam that he's shaking Sam telling him that his dad's dead and that they're both fugitives and you don't get Sam bursting into tears instead he's just sort of quietly accepts it and when he's taken when he's taken to Greta's house goes to sleep and says you know maybe when I get up in the morning, everything will be all right again. And it's just so beautifully written that it's for, you know, a nineties thriller yet it's, 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 you know, yet it's just for the approach that's taken by Hoblet and the writers is so subtle compared to the melodrama you would expect. And even though Greta says that, even though that there's a hint that Greta may We'll, we'll try and protect Sam against Azazel. We don't know whether she'll be successful in doing that or not. Um, I, so again, what, yeah. So what you what we're talking about here is <clears throat> is the polar opposites of the characters because you know this this again helps us um, with the ending and actually greatly emotionally affects us at the end with the ending because what you what what we're talking about here is that you know the boldness of Azazel. Uh, being out in in daylight, not worrying about the time of the day, it shows the arrogance and narcissistic nature of the character. And then, what on the complete utter polar opposite of that, you've got the empathetic, caring, you know, the the kind of moral centre of the movie, Hobbes, um, you know, where his actions and you know his love for other people and things like that, you know, ultimately add emotional weight to what happens at the end. You, you know. You want to see Azazel defeated. You don't want anything bad to happen to Denzel because what happens if something bad happens to Denzel is undoubtedly, you know, the emotional effect on on a lot of the on his fringe characters and, and you know his family and things like that is, you know, is going to be even greater because what will happen to them, you know, if he doesn't live. So, you, you know, it's it's a it's a pretty much tried and trusted formula within movies. But it works here. It really works here. Because there's, it, you know, there's a real sense of ambiguity that you don't get, that you wouldn't get. I think in a later film, you would take more of a, again, I'm using air quotes here, Da Vinci Code approach, where there would be an established, where there would be an established counterforce against Azazel that would be able to strike back against him and the conclusion would be a lot more epic. Here it's not, and in fact, the final, the climax of the film is actually three men in a log cabin, because Hobbes's plan is to go to Milano's log cabin uh, to fight Azazel. Um, what he plans to do is, is that he plans to kill himself 
completely alone, where there's no other body for Azazel to jump to. That's his plan. And I think it's what and it's and it's what Milano apparently planned as well when he fought Azazel so many years earlier. However, Jonesy and uh, Stanton arrive at the log cabin to thwart um to thwart Hobbes's plans because it turns out that Jonesy has been possessed by Azazel and kills Stanton in again a brilliantly set up sequence and we and we actually get to see um Azazel having fun when he's possessing somebody because we get the image of uh, John Goodman doing a jig rather well for someone of his size as he's chasing Denzel through the cabin yeah i mean this is <clears throat> this is what we were talking about earlier about Denzel being painted into a corner you, you know he sees no other way out than to do and you know and comes to the same conclusion that Milano did you know is that okay right this is how I'm going to do it. And I'm willing to sacrifice myself for the greater good. So, you know, it very much kind of follows, you know, the, the good human nature, empathetic kind of character that we've, we've seen established. So the actual, when he does decide to do this, you can actually see where his thought process has come. He's been put into an impossible situation. And, you know, when a, when an animal is painted into a corner, is cornered, they will desperately try and do things, you know, to, to, to escape. So, you know, you can see why Denzel's character um, comes to this conclusion of how to resolve this situation. And, and you're right, you know, is Azel's, you know, pulling up, you know, and, and going to the cabin, it probably knows what Denzel's going to do. Um, or does it? Do know? You know, well, it's certainly there's an arrogance of it turning up and the jig reflects the confidence and arrogance that I've been here before. Milano, try, Milano tried this and I've got out of it. So it's almost like, you know, the ending has multiple kind of interpretations to a degree. You know, did Milano do exactly the same? And, and you know, or did or is, is Azazel genuinely surprised by what? by what Denzel pulls on it. And it's almost yeah. like, you know, the arrogance that Azazel had, it's like almost yeah. a, oh, crap, you know, yeah, he's it, got me here. Yeah, it adds a level of depth because basically Denzel shoots uh, Jonesy and and all of a, and whilst at the same time smoking a poison cigarette, which means that therefore with both bodies dead, Azazel's got nobody to jump onto. And you do mm. actually, I do like the acting from John Goodman where you get to see Azazel show a moment of fear for the first time. And it's... Yeah, and, 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 and it's that's a... what I mean. Yeah, that's what I mean about, you know, Azazel rocks up and, and is arrogant and dancing a jig and, and things like that. Oh, yeah. And actually, it's almost like Denzel's now turned the tables on Azazel oh, yeah. because it never expected him to do this. And it's a great level of depth that you would that you don't, don't normally get from these sort of one-dimensional demonic enemies, but... Just when it looks like all hopes, oh, all, all hope is lost for Azazel and Denzel is won, we get the narration kicking in, and we find out that it's not been Denzel narrating the whole time; it's been Azazel using Denzel's voice, and we also find out that our our favorite demon can actually not only body hop between people, but can go into animals, as it possesses a cat, and goes off um, into the city. Uh, away from the cabin to body hop into somebody else whilst sympathy whilst sympathy for the devil closes us out on a shot full of people that could be Azazel's next host. 
Yeah, and, and listen, look, you know, some of the best movies um, work because they leave us with, you know, thoughts of what could happen and it's not a happy ending. And, um, it, you know, it's um, it's it's a lovely ending. It, you know, it ties it up. It, it, you know, it kind of like you want it, you want, you know, the heroes to win. You don't want to think that the, the devil is still out there. But ultimately, that's what the film is saying. The devil is still out there. And, you know, and it's a, it's a great ending to the movie. You can tell why probably people yeah. then, you know, having seen the movie on its opening weekend on a Friday night, then basically, you know, what you always talked about, you know, you've got to remember, we didn't have the internet back in 98. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or only a few people did. So you had very much what you called water cooler conversation yeah. so a lot of movies were released on a friday thursday friday and relied on the water cooler conversations of the following monday to main th- you know to build the box office now if people came out of that movie and were like oh i didn't really like what that i didn't really like what happened at the ending of that they were kind of like they'd probably go to the water cooler and said oh yeah i want to see fallen on i really didn't like the ending so therefore it would have put a lot of people off where you yeah. know if you go to the water cooler or, or, or oh yeah it's a fantastic movie great special effects oh it made me laugh and things like that then then people are more likely to do it you know I word mean, of mind word of mouth back in the 90s well back in before pre-internet was hugely important i mean a lot of 90s thrillers as well at the time particularly one starring denzel washington uh, you know, didn't didn't tend to have you know downbeat endings as well. I mean, audience expectations would be that super cool Denzel would save the day, and here, of course, that doesn't happen. And it's interesting, of course, that you've get that you get a lot of people online complaining about the ending because they say, "Oh, it's ridiculous. We weren't told that Azazel could possess animals before." But in the beginning of a police station sequence. We actually see Azazel briefly possess a cat that goes um, that actually that rubs up against somebody's leg inside the police station. So it is established; it's just not signposted to say to the audience, "Look, look at this cat! Look how important this cat's going to be." And it's just it's it's interesting that audience that you know the degrees to which audience members um, will. We'll turn off something that isn't a happy ending. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, this is very much about, you know, Denzel. People like Denzel and actors like Denzel shouldn't be taking a role like he did in Forward. You know, this is, it's almost like similar to, you know, echoes here to Tom Hanks in, in things like, um, um, oh, buddy, oh, what's the movie? Um, Road the to Petition. Road, Road to Petition, Petition so, yeah. yeah. It's a great So, film. you know, he's very much against type. You know, you've got to remember, you know, this is Denzel's, okay, he's he's done a couple of, um, you know, he's done Glory. Uh, you know, he made his name himself elsewhere, really made, made his name in Malcolm X, you know, danced around with, with you know, with Kenneth Branagh in Much Ado Nothing, you know, very much done the lawyer roles within the Pelican Brief in Philadelphia, starred in the awful virtuosity, you, oh. you know, but but very much, you know, he, he was doing a lot of kind of like leading man roles. You know, you've got to bear in mind, this came out the same year as he got game, you know, which is very much, a, you know, a very much a feel-good movie. So ball and goes against type of, should Denzel actually be in this role? Because, you know, what happens to him at the end isn't, isn't, 
great and you know isn't nice but actually he really makes this role and you know it's it's interesting that following baller you know he does the siege he does the hurricane he does remember the titans which i actually really like um, and it isn't until you know three years later that yeah. he plays another that he plays a, an against type role uh, with with training day and of so, course, and of course, um, after that you get Man on Fire, which again, uh, I has... mean, Man on Fire. What I mean, but, what, it's funny, but, you know. Again, of course, it do very well, but a great movie. But I mean, but the first, you know, majority of that film, you think Denzel's kicking ass, he's an action hero, and then of course comes the ending, which again completely blindsides you with what happens with his character in that film. And, and I guess a... maybe you you like we like Man on Fire. You know, because you can see where the character is heading. You know, he's a man who's committed a lot of sins throughout his life, and he's basically giving his life for a, for a young, innocent life. So you can see why that 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 character works. And and actually, the ending, the emotional effect of that ending is what makes the movie. What doesn't work for Fallen, I guess, in the audience's eyes, is they want to see Denzel win and they want the yeah. bad guy to lose, but that is not what's given to them. And, because, and I think that that is the thing that harmed it, but actually what also makes the movie great. Yeah, because the trailers of the film very much could have established that. They they kind of make it seem like a standard action-filled movie with Denzel going up against the devil, which it very much isn't. And I think that would have misled audiences as well as, you know, Denzel's prior films would have completely misled audiences as to what they would be expecting with Fallen. Speaking of Fallen, um, what's your final thoughts on it? One thing that I like about Fallen is it doesn't follow stereotypical tropes. You know, it, it does. So you can argue that it steals a lot from other movies, but then what movies don't? Um, but actually, you know, the great collection of actors that that it gathers together, you know, the the actual kind of the the story, you know, that all the story beats that it hits, it hits them at the right time. It's a very very well put together movie. And actually, the one thing that has always stayed with me is that ending. You know, the ending is fantastic. The ending is great. You know, it's one of those endings that plays with you. You know, it's a case of, oh, who's won? Has Denzel defeated it? No. You know, and it pulls the rug from underneath your feet with the cat. And so, you know, it's a, it's very much a movie that plays with your emotions towards the end and, and what's happening. And it's one of those movies that, you know, if you give it time, you just sit down and watch it, you'll actually find a very, very good thriller. And it's no surprise that critics <coughs> call it in Denzel's top five, top ten movies. Well, that was well. That's the end of our first episode of Films That Time Forgot, covering the film Fallen. If this podcast has inspired you to see the film, go ahead. If it hasn't, then hey, that's okay as well. I've been your host, Adam Thornton, and I just want to thank our guest, Julian, for joining us. Hey, Adam, it's been absolutely um, brilliant talking about this movie. You know, it's been really good fun. So just talking about movies and, and being able to kind of go off on tangents and, you know, talk about all the kind of oh. the great actors and the great stories and the, the other, you know, movies that, you know, that, that we've talked about in this. And, you know, good luck with the podcast. Um, great to, to be invited on. And if you ever need me back, I'm here for you, dude. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. And join us for our next episode where we will be covering another Denzel Washington film, Virtuosity. 
So until oh, then, no. good so luck it, with that one. <laughs> uh, well, don't worry, we won't make you watch that one. But until then, keep watching. Thank <laughs> you.